This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, let's test the voice. I'm, I'm sensing a little Tom Waits is coming through. I hope not. I hope this is not the beginning of something. I got to tell you, it's been a bit of a rough two weeks in the, uh, the Serrett household, the mighty Aphrodite. Just now, getting back on her feet, she was laid up for eight days plus with excruciating headaches, and she doesn't suffer from migraines. For those of you who do, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they're debilitating. She, didn't ha- she doesn't have migraines, but she had uh, a constant headache, and finally, after uh, not, it did not subside uh, for three days. Tylenol wouldn't help, so I took her to the doctor, and uh, they did a throat swab, and it uh, gave her a script for some antibiotics, but they really weren't sure what it was. The, uh, the headaches continued, and uh, after the throat swab, they, uh, they called her back and said, it's not strep throat. What you had was aseptic meningitis. Aseptic meningitis. I'd never heard of aseptic meningitis. But thankfully, it's not the, the deadly, potentially deadly bacterial form. It's, uh, it's a viral form. And, and uh, many of you out there, you know, th- uh, this has been a tough winter. Uh, just all sorts of things uh, coming down the pipe. Uh, not your normal strains of flu and, and different types of viruses and so forth, but uh, thankfully, thank God, uh, the mighty Aphrodite is on the mend. And uh, that was not fun. Imagine uh, just eight days of constant headaches and just uh, throwing back the uh, the Advil like Pez. Uh, uh, so she's she's much better, and, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, but now I started, I'm starting to feel a little uh, something going on in my throat, so here we go. Uh, it's just before Christmas, I wanted to tell you this. Uh, before Christmas, because I spent a fair amount of time on airplanes, and uh, uh, I don't like to necessarily watch the in-flight movies, so I, uh, I wanted I wanted to get myself a nice big fat book to read. And my uh, my the, the the Christmas before, my mom had bought my brother-in-law Bob uh, Stephen King's book, which had just come out, called Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. Now, those of you who know me and are regular listeners know I love time travel stories, and this has a huge time travel component in it. Some of the, uh, the uh, not to ruin it for you, but the the main 
sort of uh, thrust of the book is someone wants to travel back in time and prevent the Kennedy assassination by stopping Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay, so I'm in a, a hotel in Inglewood, California, not too far from LAX, and I've got the book on my nightstand, and I've got this guy coming over uh, that I'm going to interview for season three of the TV show, The Conspiracy Show. And, and he's going to talk to me about uh, um, MLK's assassination. We're doing an episode on uh, Martin Luther King and the, and the framing of James Earl Ray. And also uh, JFK. We're doing a JFK episode. First thing he says when he comes to the door, this is how perceptive and, 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 and keen this guy's senses are. He just glances quickly to the left, sees 112263 on the nightstand and says, who's reading that? And I said, I am? He said, why would you read that? That's total disinformation. And I I hadn't even thought of that. Of course, Stephen King, you know, obviously is propping up the Oswald as a lone gunman theory in this book. But I I just bought it because love time travel and, uh, you know, I I just need good pulp fiction to get me through those flights. Anyway, that was my introduction uh, to my first guest tonight. And uh, James DiEugenio is with us. He's the co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations, and was co-editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of JFK, MLK, Robert Kennedy, and Malcolm X. This should be in everybody's library. He's also the co-author of the recently uh, published, it's not just a second edition, it's it's almost a complete rewrite. It's a heavily revised uh, re-release of a book that came out 20, over 20 years ago, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And it's a great a pleasure to have James DiEugenio on The Conspiracy Show. Jim, how are you? Okay, fine. <laughs> Do you remember when you saw that book on my nightstand? Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yes, and I remember, and one of the reasons that uh, I was... Um, really kind of um, upset about it is that if you read the afterword to King's book, he makes a big deal about you have to follow the rifle. And if you remember, I demonstrated to you in your hotel room that day that if you follow the rifle, it does not lead to Lee Harvey Oswald. No, you had, I, listen, this was a real education, Jim. Not that I ever believed Oswald was a gunman, but as a, you know, not to belabor the point, I bought the book because I love time travel. Anyway, uh, and we can get into a whole discussion, I suppose, at some point. We should point out, this is part one. We're going to do a, a second hour on this. this. There's so much information here, and, and a lot of people saying, maybe to themselves, geez, I thought, you know, everything about the JFK uh, assassination is already known. It's out there. Uh, but you've really uncovered... Um, uh, th- through the declassification process. Maybe let's start there. Uh, you know, why, why um, you know, revisit this material 20 years later? There's this declassification process you've been involved with. It's uncovered a lot of documents, new documents. Tell me about that. Well, my first version of this book came out, like you said, over 20 years ago. And this was before the creation of the ARB, which is the Assassinations Record Review Board, which went to work in around 1994 and stayed at work for about four years declassifying two million pages of new documents on the Kennedy case. Now, if you know anything about this case, previously, before the ARB, there were two million pages of documents at the National Archives. 
So they had to make a whole new archive at the University of Maryland called National Archives Two to put in all these new documents. All right? And in my opinion, in my opinion, they kind of revolutionized the subject matter that I had chosen to write about. Okay? And so I felt like my first book was kind of an okay effort, but it was really kind of how to say this? It was really kind of um not current. It was really too traditional in its in its repetition of facts because all the new facts that had now been declassified by the ARB kind of in my opinion, changed the calculus of the whole Kennedy assassination, especially the aspect that I was looking at, which was what happened in New Orleans uh, with Oswald in the summer of 1963, and what happened to the investigation of Jim Garrison, which started in 1966, and then the result of what happened to him, you know, uh, in the the years 69 through 73, and what happened to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And then the last part of the book is about the reversal of JFK's foreign policy forays by Lyndon Johnson. And I, I like I wrote in the, this book could never have been written without the ARB. And in my opinion, in, in my honest opinion, and I've said this more than once, there's no point in writing another book on the Kennedy assassination if you don't use these new documents, there really isn't. Right. Because right. it's sort of like night and day, you know, before and after. James so Eugenio. I, and you're, at, you're exactly right, by the way. You know, it's not correct to call it a second edition. No. It's, it's actually a 90% rewritten volume. Okay? It's actually really another book. I would say. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. This is part one of a, of a, a second, a two-parter. And uh, Jim, I think you're going to come back next week. We're going to do another hour. So what I thought we could do is tonight is, is focus on, um, we really need to set the stage in terms of the, the climate, the foreign policy climate. We have to back up uh, before Kennedy even you know, was a senator. We have to back up to the end of the Second World War. Talk about the climate, the the uh, the emergence of the United States as a superpower after Britain sort of you know they're basically bust after the Second World War. So they've got to hand this over to the, the, this mantle over to the United States. Then we see the emergence of this you know national security state, the uh, the the evolution of the CIA. We'll get into that, and then we'll see you know where Kennedy finds himself. Uh, when he assumes office, and how ultimately, as you point out in this book, Destiny Betrayed, how his foreign policy, his, his, his philosophies, and how they change in terms of the Cold War, how those philosophies would mark him for death. So let's, let's start, really, I guess, the, uh, the end of the Second World War. Let's, let's talk about the emergence of this national security state that the United States would become. All right. Um, That's actually where I begin the book. All right. And what happened, of course, as you just mentioned, is that after 1945, um, with all the expenditures that England had made on World War II, that the country was essentially sapped and bankrupted. 
and could not even hold on to its colonial empire anymore. And so they sent an envoy to see Secretary of State George Marshall. And Marshall wasn't in, so they met with Dean Acheson, the acting secretary, and essentially told them this. You know, we're in no position, you know, to continue our leadership of the West, you know, now. So we're going to go ahead and make it clear that we expect you guys to go ahead and pick up the mantle, which, of course, is what happened. The United States now became um, the leader of the Western world, and against this new threat, which had been, which was perceived uh, even before the end of World War II, you know, which of course was the Soviet Union. All right, because when, once Roosevelt passed away, and Truman stepped in, Truman was not anywhere near the kind of sophisticate on the on foreign affairs that FDR was. So immediately what happened is that in a space of two years, the Cold War was essentially set in stone. And you had the mapping out of not just the United States versus the Soviet Union, but you had these alliances set in place, like NATO you know, on one side and the Warsaw Pact, on the other, and you had economic alliances, you know, like Cinecom on, on, the, on the eastern side, you know, and the European free market on, on, on the western side, you know, and they were actually beginning to draw maps, of course, you know, you know, red for the curtains behind, the countries behind the so-called Iron Curtain, and blue, the countries on the west of that. And so you eventually had the creation of the CIA, as the capstone of this, all right? And, and once the CIA was put into place, there was this clause in the National Security Act that ended up being a Pandora's box that allowed the use of what came to be called covert action, you know, against whoever the perceived enemy was. Okay, let's just hold all it right? there, James. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about the CIA and how they recruited uh, several key... Uh, members of, of Hitler's uh, intelligence uh, regime in Eastern Europe, Reinhard Galen and others. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, Part 1, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hospital sources gave this report of the arrival at the emergency entrance to the hospital, and I quote from the hospital, The president was lying motionless in the car. Mrs. Kennedy was leaning over him, holding him. Governor Connolly was leaning back in the seat, holding his stomach. Both men were covered with blood. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. If you think you know everything there is to know about the JFK assassination, think again. James D. Eugenio is here with a heavily revised 
uh, or rewrite, really, of his um, his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, uh, heavily reworked because of uh, new documents that have come to light that were declassified. And uh, this is the first of a two-parter. Now, James, let's talk. We have to talk about the Dulles boys. We have uh, John Foster Dulles, of course, Secretary of State under uh, Eisenhower during the Eisenhower administration. His younger brother, Alan, uh, would become head of the CIA, the longest-serving member of the CIA. Now, Dulles uh, was instrumental in recruiting key Nazis to, to basically uh, run the CIA, or is that an overstatement? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, because if you take a look at Alan Dulles's career, there's probably nobody, no one, who influenced the course of the Central Intelligence Agency more than he did. And it was him and John McCloy, who later served, both served in the Warren Commission, who recruited this Nazi named Reinhard Galen, um, who was captured at the end of World War II when Dulles was the head of station in Berlin. All right, He specifically made orders not to shoot Galen, okay, because he wanted to incorporate his uh, spy apparatus into what he knew would eventually become the Central Intelligence Agency. Then when John McCloy became the commissioner, the high commissioner in West Germany, it was him who actually okayed this deal and made it a part of West German culture. And Reinhard Galen ended up making quite a lot of money off this. I think the figure was the CIA gave him an annual check of about $5 million a year. This is 1949. Yeah, that, which was a hell of a lot of money Ooh. back then. A lot okay. of money now. Well, it's a lot of money now, but it was even more back then. I would be surprised if it was more like 15 or $20 million back then. You know? And so this was the beginning, of course, if you ask me and if you ask a lot of other people, of the fixing of intelligence against the Soviet Union to always make it appear that the Soviet threat was much larger and more serious than it always than it than it really was. Which of course and I explain in the book why Dulles would want this to happen, because not too many people understand his background as a longtime State Department officer, intelligence officer, but also he worked for this giant corporate law firm out of New York City, which his brother was the managing partner of Sullivan and Cromwell, all right? And Sullivan and Cromwell was one of the largest corporate law firms in the world. It's, by the way, it still is, you know, in the world. And so they essentially served the interests of these, you know, like General Electric, you know, like the oil, the oil companies, okay, et cetera, things like that. And they did their bidding not only in America, but throughout the world. And I mentioned a part of in the part of the book where Alan Dulles actually rigged these elections in South America for the Mellon family, the big banking family out of Pittsburgh, okay, to make sure that that this new incoming government, which was a threat, would not go ahead and you know try and nationalize the own the ownership values that the Mellons had there. And of course, once Alan Dulles then becomes director of the CIA which is under his brother, he completely revolutionizes the Central Intelligence Agency. 
which, of course, a lot of people had regrets about this, about what he did, including Harry Truman, which I, we'll get to that story later. So now the CIA under Ellen Dulles became a, what's the best way to explain it, a kind of coup d'etat machine. Right, right? they're guns for hire for corporate America. Right, exactly. And, and, and the most, two most famous examples, of course, are what happened in Iran in 1953 and then in Guatemala in 1954, where in 1953, Dulles was serving the interests of the oil companies. In 1954, he was serving the interests of United Fruit, you know, in Guatemala. Right. right. So but they're yeah, fighting these... The only ones, of course. He so... tried to uh, overthrow the government of Indonesia... In, in 1957, you know, he put a contract out on Patrice Lumumba in 1960 in the Congo. And, of course, it was Alan Dulles and his brother who made sure that once the French left Vietnam, that Ho Chi Minh would not be allowed to come in and take over and unify the country, which had been agreed upon at the Geneva Conference in 1954. They went ahead and made sure that the Central Intelligence Agency, under a famous covert operator, Edward Lansdale, found a substitute in Ngo Dinh Diem, and they propped him up in South Vietnam okay, as this so-called leader of South Vietnam. And this, of course, was the beginning of the Second Civil War in Vietnam after World War II. So James, if I could just summarize here. So if I could just summarize here. So is the CIA is running around uh, engaged in all these covert operations and uh, you know mo- most people Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch thinking God bless them they're keeping America f- you know safe from communists. But really what they were doing was keeping the world safe for corporate America and their and their their multinationals. But the, you know this this so this Soviet threat because you know the it was being perceived, I guess, through the eyes of these former Nazis. I don't know if you can even call them former Nazis that were that were you know installed into this national security state apparatus in the United States. Obviously, they're going to perceive the threat. They're going to inflate, you know, the threat because Nazis, communists don't get along. Uh, yeah. So, is that a fair a fair summation of what of yeah, what we're talking I, about? I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. I think that a lot of the things that the Dulles brothers cloaked as being done in the name of anti-communism was really being done in the name of corporate American corporate hegemony in the third world. I mean, I don't think anybody could say that Mossadegh, the guy that was overthrown in Iran, right. was a communist. You know, and I don't think you could say that about our Benz either. You know, right? Or Allende. Or Allende. Yeah. Going further. Yeah. See, what these guys were were nationalists. Okay, they wanted to keep the resources of their countries more for their own people. But if that was going to happen, that meant that companies like United Fruit and like these oil companies in Iran. We're going to get a much larger, less, less sizable part of the pie, and that's what. Then they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to settle for that. No. Flash okay. forward to Cuba. Flash forward to Cuba, 1959, 
and 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 uh, you know Batista, a horrible horrible uh, dictator, and uh, uh, I mean even the, even the the uh, the Eisenhower administration recognized that you know this guy had to go, but but uh, Castro originally didn't come across as unless he you know was was just lying through his teeth, he didn't come across like a communist. I mean he again he was a nationalist, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and in fact the um, the uh, the White House and the State Department were rather kind of late in recognizing who he and Che Guevara really were. Now, in this particular case of Cuba, it, it's they, these guys were communists. Okay, you know they, Che Guevara, and they were at first nationalists when they got rid of Batista, but then they slowly gravitate. Well, not really slowly. Che Guevara was really a communist from the get-go. It was Castro who, in about a year or two, turned into a communist. But this is, and I, this is what I talk about in my book. But that's because when he came to the United States, the powers that be in the State Department wanted him to go along with the World Bank and IMF stuff. Now, if anybody knows anything about the way the World Bank works and the International Monetary Fund, and I think um, if you've read that book by John Perkins, Confessions yes. of an Economic Hitman. I've had John on, yeah. Yeah, okay. Do you understand the way that works? The way that works is they get you so much in debt to them that they then go ahead and put an austerity program in effect in your country, which lowers the standard of living for, for everybody. So when Castro got a load of this, you know, he understood that he was going to have to, A, get rid of the American imperialism inside of Cuba and form a kind of treaty with the Soviet Union. So he started nationalizing so exactly cattle ranches, and yeah, he started taking over. In the space of a year. And so in, 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 in a sense, he was forced into the Soviet, uh, uh, into the Soviet, uh, into the arms of the Soviets. He had, he had a little yeah, choice. I, I, think, I, I think you could make that argument. Although, like I said, in this case, I think you could say, you know, they, they were really more or less socialist or communist to begin with. But Castro, at least, was willing to talk to the United States. Okay. But Eisenhower and Dulles did not want to talk to him. And then when he started making these programs to confiscate uh, the American interests in Cuba and paying only what the book price was, that's an important part of my book. See... Castro was going to nationalize these, these properties at the book price. The problem was that these companies had all understated the value of their property to dodge taxes. Okay? So, in other words, Castro was going to essentially beat them at their them own game. By their own petard. Right, right. Knowing that they had lied about the value of the properties, he was going to go ahead and pay them the book value. So, they didn't like that. <laughs> James D. Eugenio. It was okay for them to cheat sure. the Cuban government, but it wasn't okay for the Cuban government to turn it around on them. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Okay, so we've sort of set the stage, albeit in a very hurried fashion. Uh, you know, the, the, the emergence of the United States as the superpower after Britain hands over that mantle post-Second World War, the emergence of the CIA and the national security state apparatus, which included uh, former high-ranking Nazi intelligence officials like Reinhard Galen, uh, and 
Then along comes Jack Kennedy, who was also, you know, very uh, anti uh, anti communist. I mean, he uh, in his in that Nixon debate. Uh, you know, Nixon talked about the Democrats losing China and, and Kennedy shot back. Well, you lost, you know, uh, an island just 90 miles offshore. K- Kennedy campaigned um, as a Cold War warrior. Yeah. Is that a question? Well, not really, but I'm just I just I just want I'm leading into the, the conversation with you because I mean, I, I, I think many people might be even that don't know their history might be surprised by that. What do you think? I mean, um... well, I, if, if you you obviously read my book, and you you understand that Kennedy understood um, what he had to say in public, okay, and he also understood because he was educated on this quite a long time ago that the United States was doing some really bad things in the third world, and in the book, what I do is relate what I believe is probably the most the most important event in understanding who John Kennedy really was was his trip to Southeast Asia in 1951 because he, wanted, he was planning on running for the Senate the next year. And so he understood he had to get educated about foreign policy. So he went to Southeast Asia, and he landed in Saigon, and he deliberately ditched the French emissaries – who were there to meet him, because he wanted to get the true picture of what was really happening. So he wandered around, you know, knocking on doors, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, finding, trying to find the best reporters and the people who had the best reputation in the State Department. And he finally meets a guy named Edmund Gullion. And you don't know who John Kennedy really was unless you understand this meeting, okay? Because... This literally changed Kennedy's whole perspective on communism in the third world, all right? Because he simply he asked him, he says, you know, can the French win the war? And Goulian says, the French will never win this war. Okay, and he says, well, why? Because the French will never win this war because this war is not about communism versus democracy. This war is a war of national liberation, okay? And Ho Chi Minh had galvanized the imaginations and the hearts and minds of so many young men throughout Vietnam that they were willing to die rather than go back under French colonialism, all right? And the French could never win that kind of war. They could never win a war of attrition because they would lose the support of the home front. They would never be able to convince the average Parisian that it was worth it to go into the jungles of South Vietnam, you know, and fight against these people who only wanted their country to be free. All right, we're starting to see the emergence of John F. Kennedy's uh, philosophies regarding a foreign policy, which may have marked him for death 12 years later. James D. Eugenio with us. Destiny betrayed JFK Cuba and the Garrison case. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago 
that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program. For from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. One of the uh, the luxuries of late night long form radio is it gives you the opportunity to really drill down. And that's what we're doing right now with James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. And and this is the first of a two-parter. And next week in that hour, yes, we'll get into uh, into uh, Oswald and we'll talk about, uh, you know, what happened to Oswald in New Orleans and we'll, uh, eventually we'll talk about the Warren Commission and all of these things uh, that are so obviously important uh, to the JFK assassination, uh, JFK assassination research. But we're laying the groundwork right now with James D. Eugenio and talking about the climate, the foreign policy, the national security state that was emerging in the U.S. These were the conditions that existed as JFK came to power in uh, in January of 1961. So so let's talk about uh, Cuba for a moment, James, and what happened just before Jack came to office, the, 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 uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion that was planned during the Eisenhower years. What was that all about? Well, by the end of 1959, in the early part of 1960, Eisenhower had a series of meetings in the White House in which were, they was, these were interagency meetings, and which included the State Department, uh, the CIA, the White House, um, representatives from the American Embassy in Havana, etc. And they decided that there was no living with Castro. All right? So the embargo went on against Cuba, all right? and they began to plan a series of exfiltration and infiltration operations to destabilize Cuba, that is to recruit uh, people who did not like Castro coming into the United States. All right, And they also began to plan paramilitary action, which was supposed to culminate in an invasion of Cuba. Okay, Now, Eisenhower wanted the political arm of what, was, what he imagined was going to be this new government, established very strongly in exile, okay, 
before he went ahead and gave the okay to any kind of invasion. All right. Well, this was not done. Okay, that part was not done. All right. And the action officer in the White House for the what was going to be this invasion was Richard Nixon. Okay. Now Nixon had always planned that the invasion was going to happen before the election. And he was going to ride this, you know, to victory. All right. Well, it didn't happen because Eisenhower didn't okay it. All right. So to everybody's shock and surprise, Kennedy wins this very narrow victory by about 100,000 votes in the election. All right. And so now, now, this culminating project of Eisenhower's plan, the so-called Bay of Pigs invasion, is now in Kennedy's administration. Okay? Now, and this, by the way, I really believe, I think this is chapter three of my books, and it's called Bay of Pigs, Kennedy versus Dulles. I'm very, very proud of this chapter because I really don't think that anybody has done a better job in a short version of summarizing the Bay of Pigs invasion and how it, how it went down, how it was planned, how it led to this falling out between Kennedy and the CIA, and especially between Dulles and Kennedy, in a short version as I have. There's been a lot of stuff declassified on the Bay of Pigs, all right, and I used it in this chapter. To put this in a nutshell, I think I spend about 22 pages on it, you know, in the book. To put this in a nutshell, Dulles and Bissell, that is the two guys in the CIA who were running the operation, understood from a very early date that Kennedy didn't really like it, okay? It really wasn't his cup of tea, all right? And Kennedy actually changed the operation. See, this is what happened. Once Kennedy took office, Bissell and Dussel—excuse me, Bissell and Dulles—changed the operation from a commando type of infiltration operation to a large strike force kind of operation. All right, they didn't think the original plan was going to work, and the reason they didn't think it was going to work is Castro had rounded up all the renegade people inside of Cuba by 1961. So there really wasn't anything for them to hook up with. So they changed it to a much larger operation, okay, that was going to be a strike force kind of thing that needed air support to succeed, all right? Well, they understood that Kennedy really didn't like this idea. He changed it once, okay, and they – and there's no – there's really no way around this. There's really no way around this. They lied to him about two very important points. They lied to him about the amount of air support that the operation was going to need, and they lied to him about the hope of going guerrilla if the strike force did not succeed at first. All right, Jim, i got to jump right. in here. We'll take a timeout, come back, and we'll continue with the Bay of Pigs, Destiny Betrayed, James DiEugenio, The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, uh, a second edition, which is really just a heavily uh, revised uh, edition 
20 years after uh, it was first published. Now, uh, we're talking about the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy, um, you know, from what I understand, tell me if I'm wrong, didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily against overthrowing uh, Castro and replacing him, but he just didn't want American fingerprints on this operation. He didn't want it coming back uh, and, and, and ha- having it known that the U.S. was fomenting this. He, th- this is what he objected to. He did not want any kind of overt American presence involved. He believed that the United States did have the right to support dissident parts of foreign countries who were trying to overthrow communism. But he didn't believe that the United States itself should use its own forces in which to do this. Now, see, and this was the difference between Dulles and him. Okay, and that's why I call this chapter Kennedy versus Dulles. Okay, because Kennedy had this education from Edmund Gullion. You know, he was sensitive to what the United States had done in the Third World, where Dulles just didn't care. You know, it didn't matter to him if it was really America overthrowing this regime. Okay, it didn't matter to him at all. And by the way, I should also say this it didn't matter to Nixon either. Because when Kennedy called up Nixon when the operation was failing, he asked him what he would have done if it would have been him. He goes, well, I would have declared that we had a beachhead and I would have sent in the, the Navy. Well, see, the problem is the Cuban exiles never established a beachhead or anything close to it. So this ended up being a disaster all the way around. And when the CIA tried to get Kennedy to commit American air power, he wouldn't do it. Okay, and he wouldn't send in the Navy either, right, to save the day. So when Castor was able to get his artillery and his tanks to the front, it essentially just crushed this 1,500-man force in a matter of less than 72 hours. Okay, and so Kennedy did something in the wake of the Bay of Pigs that really today is kind of hard to believe especially when you think back to what George W. Bush did, okay, in the wake of the 9-11 tragedy, all right, in which, to my knowledge, nobody got fired. Nobody in the FBI, nobody in the CIA got fired, and there should have been, all right? Well, Kennedy, there were two investigations of what happened, one in the CIA and one in the White House. The one in the CIA was done by Inspector General Lyman Kirkpatrick, and the one in the White House was done by General Maxwell Taylor. All right. The one in the White House, Bobby Kennedy was on. All right. And so I detail the results of both those investigations. And Kennedy came to see that he had essentially been duped. That Dulles knew that this operation was never going to succeed on its own. And he was banking that Kennedy, instead of going through this humiliation, both personal and national, okay, that he would go ahead and commit American forces, even though he had said like five days before the invasion in public that he wasn't going to do it. All right? So when Kennedy didn't do this, the operation collapsed. All right? And so Kennedy found out, through the results of both investigations, that he had been tricked, that Dulles and Bissell had this secret agenda. To what extent, Jim, so, do you think Kennedy's refusal 
to commit U.S. forces to the invasion. Uh, to what extent did that seal his fate in Dallas? Oh, I think it's very important, because at the end of this chapter, chapter 3, you know, I go ahead and outline how Dulles hit back. Once Kennedy fired him over this, Dulles and Howard Hunt hit back at Kennedy in this famous article in Fortune magazine, where instead of admitting that they had tried to trick Kennedy, they tried to blame the failure for the operation on him by saying that he had canceled the so-called D-Day airstrikes, and that had blown the operation. And I'm, I, I don't know if you read this chapter, but I was very careful to show that there was no such thing as a D-Day airstrikes. That if there were going to be any D-Day airstrikes, that is, the dawn of the invasion, jet fighters were going to come in and knock out Castro's Air Force. Kennedy made it very clear that those were going to be launched from inside Cuba, only if the exiles established a beachhead. He didn't want them flown from Central America. And he didn't want American pilots flying them. Okay? Well, since there was no beachhead, there were no D-Day airstrikes. But this is what they used against him to blame it on him. And they got this writer for Fortune magazine, Charles Murphy, who conferred with Howard Hunt and Alan Dulles, and then he ghost-wrote this article that was really supplied by Hunt and Dulles. And this is what then inflamed both the upper classes and the Cuban exiles into believing that it was really Kennedy who was at fault for this. And as I note at the end of the chapter, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of these Cubans ended up being in Dallas that day. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, and one of them, Bernardo de Torres, was disguised as a reporter and reportedly had pictures of Kennedy's assassination in a safe deposit box that Life magazine wanted to pay him for, but he wouldn't give them to him. Or that Sergio Arcacha Smith had diagrams of the source system under Dealey Plaza, or David Phillips, who recruited a lot of these Cubans, on his deathbed, finally admitted to his brother that he was in Dallas that day. And Howard Hunt, as everyone knows mm-hmm. from Mark Lane's book, Plausible Denial, never could find an alibi for where he really was on November 22nd, 1963. Nor could so Richard I Nixon. Believe the Bay of Pigs is very important. Nor could Richard in, Nixon. In this. <laughs> I'm saying, nor could Richard Nixon, James. I remember right, him being true. asked years, where were you? He, I don't he, he remember. Stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, and, and after this fiasco of the Bay of Pigs, uh, there was a, an exchange, they, uh, Castro handed over uh, some, 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 some prisoners in exchange for, the U.S. sent over baby formula and, and, and things that the, the Cubans were in dire need of. What, this was all now being perceived then that, at this point, that, what, Kennedy is soft on communism, he's pro-Castro. Is that how it was being played up by Dulles and the others? Well, see, number one, Kennedy had, if Kennedy was going to get rid of Castro, he had the perfect opportunity to bad pigs. Number two, if he didn't want to do it then, he had another perfect opportunity to missile crisis in October of 1962. 
when everybody was telling him to go ahead and bomb and invade the island to get rid of these missiles. Okay? You know, well, he didn't do it then either. So instead, what did he do? Mongoose. As, as, well, Mongoose was, was, was ended by the missile crisis. Okay? Mongoose was this eight-month program of uh, infiltration and covert operations okay, to kind of do a double-track system with Castro. All right. It was not very successful, as I outline in my book. You know, Lansdale was never able to get any results. Okay, and then along came the missile crisis, and right after the missile crisis, Kennedy pulled the plug on Mongoose. I think it was November the 29th. Okay, that that he pulled the plug on Mongoose because he had made this deal with Castro. That and then the Russians, that there would not be any more attacks on Cuba from mainland United States. So these operations were either cut off or they were moved into Central America, all right? And then, as you mentioned, during this prisoner exchange, which I think was in December of 1962, Kennedy gets word that Castro, because of his falling out with Khrushchev, Castro really didn't like the way Khrushchev negotiated over his head with Kennedy about the resolution of the missile crisis. Castro was ready to talk about getting some kind of dialogue going between the United States and Cuba headed for normalization of relations. So this is what began this famous back channel. Okay, So now, as you can see, in the space of three years, Kennedy has completely reversed the Eisenhower-Dulles policy on Cuba. Now he's talking about negotiating with Castro to actually normalize relations with this communist. And these negotiations went on for months, and they were not really fully disclosed. I mean, John Donnell, who was the last guy, wrote two articles in the New Republic about the last leg of the negotiations. But it wasn't until the church committee interviewed William Atwood that, and he was the first guy who began to talk about, to, to Castro about normalization, through Carlos Lechuga, who was a Cuban ambassador in New York City. All right, he was the first guy to establish his back channel, that we began to get the whole full picture. These negotiations went on for about 11 months, all right, through people like Atwood, through people like ABC reporter Lisa Howard, and the last leg was by John Donnell, the French uh, journalist who Atwood recommended. And they were actually talking about Atwood going down to Cuba, landing in Mexico City, all right, and then meeting somebody and flying into Cuba, all right, secretly, in order to begin the agenda, you know, going ahead and negotiating terms for a recognition of Cuba. Now, 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 so really, let's really think about this, okay? Three years earlier, Eisenhower and Dulles had essentially declared war on Cuba. There was no living with Castro, okay? The CIA had various assassination plots to kill him, which I outline in the book, all right? Now, three years later, okay, Kennedy is actually talking about reversing that policy, now, as I write in the book, when Danielle arrived in Havana and he told Castro, Kennedy's last message, 
Castro was overjoyed. He said, finally comes an American president, you know, who has the interests, you know, of the working class people in mind. All right. Kennedy will now go down in history as the greatest president since Lincoln. And they spent three days together celebrating. And then on November 22nd, 1963, Castro, they, they hear the news on the radio. Kennedy has been shot in Dallas. And Castro completely collapses. And he says, this is bad news. And he says this three times. All right, listen, Jim, this is a phone call. This About is a half hour later. OK, Kennedy's dead. And he turns to Danielle and he says, everything has now changed. Everything has changed indeed. Listen, this is a good uh, place to leave it till next week. I think we've set okay. the stage nicely. James D. Eugenio will be back next Sunday, uh, uh, 11 p.m. or for the, uh, our affiliates. Um, whenever, the, whenever you hear this show next week, Jim will be our first order of business. Part two, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Thank you for this, uh, Jim, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll head into Dallas next week. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. All right, James Eugenio. You can follow The Conspiracy Show at theportalrichardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Last week I received from uh, some very disturbing news. Someone sent me a, a link to a newspaper article from a Santa Barbara newspaper. Uh, and it was then that I learned an acquaintance of mine, someone who I had met just several months prior in uh, Santa Monica, Phil Marshall, former commercial airline pilot and the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror, had allegedly killed his two teenage children and then uh, killed himself. Murder, suicide. I don't, I can't say that I knew Phil Marshall that well, but uh, it, having met him and talked with him for several hours and on the radio, it just doesn't sound right and I'm, I'm still... Uh, in shock, quite frankly. Um, what you're about to hear is our last conversation, September 9th, 2012, two days before the 11th anniversary. And uh, the big bamboozle essentially implicates members of the uh, the Soviet, the uh, the Saudi royal family, the Saudi uh, secret uh, uh, intelligence network, the Civil Aviation Authority, working in concert with individuals inside the uh, the George W. Bush White House. Uh, for orchestrating and pulling off the 9-11 terror attacks. And uh, here is my conversation, my last conversation with the late Phil Marshall, author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Philip, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, good evening, Richard. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And it was uh, a delight meeting you in Santa Monica a couple of weeks back and a real eye-opener. Yes. Let me uh, begin uh, by saying this. I... um, 
I finished the book, and I, I again, I think it's important that uh, everyone within earshot uh, get a copy. Not that uh, you know, we're, not that I, I normally promote books to this extent, but I think you've really nailed this one. Uh, like a lot of people, I got distracted with the whole control demolition uh, aspect of this unsolved crime. And now, after reading your book, Philip, I am convinced that that is a huge distraction, uh, maybe by design, I'm not sure. But um, a lot of the information, uh, the, uh, the, I mean, this is the, 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 the world's biggest unsolved crime, and a lot of the information that solves it is contained in a report that was uh, issued by the Congressional Joint Inquiry, something that most people have never heard of, fewer have even read. Tell me about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. When, when was it formed, and, and, and who were its um, leaders? Yeah, it was, uh, it was right after the attacks, actually. Uh, in 2002, the inquiry was formed over the objections of the Bush White House. And um, Senator Bob Graham, who was the head of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence uh, for the Senate, was the head of that inquiry. And, um, you know, they did a 10-month investigation into it. They were able to find FBI documents, you know, that showed that the FBI agents had, had been following the 9-11 hijackers and that they had been in contact, in, in close, uh, uh, continuous contact with uh, Saudi Arabian intelligence agents who were acting as their uh as their guides through america uh you know they they landed in um i mean the inquiry report is is fascinating uh it shows that the hijacker two of the hijackers had landed in los angeles back in uh january on january 15th to be precise of uh 2000 and were soon met by Saudi agents who were connected to my area of expertise, which is the training of the of the hijackers on the on the Boeing airplanes. Uh, the the uh, uh, Bob Phil uh, or Bob Graham rather, uh, yeah. who led the inquiry. He was joined by a couple of top notch congressional investigators. Tell me about them. Yeah, there was uh, one. Eleanor Hill was a uh, a, a veteran congressional investigator, and another guy named Jake Jacobson. Who uh, who was also a F, former FBI uh, agent, and he had turned um, into an investigator. He he investigated it for for the Congress also. And as you as you point out, you have two FBI's in this in this scenario. You have the field agents who are trying desperately to avert or avoid uh, catastrophe. And then you have this other FBI with asterisks beside it. Explain the difference between the field agents and this other FBI uh, FBI headquarters, I believe you referred to them as. Yeah, well, the, the FBI field agents were following the hijackers. They, had, um, they were looking for them. And then uh, headquarters, basically, um, which was, you know, being run out of the George Bush Center for Intelligence, um, you know, every time they sent up, you know, hey, we, we, we found these guys out training, you know, later on in, in the investigation, um, the hijackers were out in the desert in Arizona 
uh, training to fly Boeing airplanes. And the FBI field agents actually sent up a message to headquarters, hey, we found these guys out here. We believe they're up to no good. We believe they're doing some sort of a terrorist operation. And, um, you know, they sent the warnings up to Washington, and when they got there, they, they literally disappeared. Now, before we get into uh, a lot of the substance here, which, again, uh, draws, uh, connects the dots, really, between the, the royal house of Saud, members of the royal family uh, of Saudi Arabia, and the 9-11 terrorist, uh, terrorists, uh, and this national security state that you're beginning to describe. Um, let me ask you why we haven't heard about the Congressional Joint Inquiry. If it was, um, uh, you know, struck in, in 2002 and you had uh, Senator Bob Graham leading this and investigators, uh, this is before the 9-11 Commission. Why didn't we hear about this? Why didn't the mainstream media report about this inquiry? Yeah, well, it was Dick Cheney's work. Uh, Dick Cheney actually called Bob Graham on the phone and told him to basically put a lid on it and, um, you know, that if he tried to reveal any of the stuff that they ended up redacting in that report, which was 28 pages worth, that they would face charges of leaking classified information. So they, they threatened him with jail if he was to release any of this information to the, to the media or to the public. And then Bob Graham would later, a couple of years later, write his own book. Uh, I believe it was entitled Security Matters. Did he divulge this information in that book? Yes, he, he went into great detail, you know, and, and he made a, a bunch of great points, you know, one, one being that, you know, hey, if it would be so difficult, you know, say you and I, Richard, decided we're going to go to Russia and do some sort of a, uh, a you know, aerial assault like this in a, in a big operation, you know, how, how difficult would it really be, you know, for, for them to detect us in their country trying to pull off some sort of an attack like this. But as we look at this, there were, you know, there were at least 20 people involved in the, in the direct conspiracy. And, um, you know, the people behind the, the scenes who were training these uh, hijackers to become pilots, you know, to fly a mission that lasted about 30 minutes long, you know, you know, it, it really gets, it really is almost impossible to think that, you know, that these guys could have been in the country training, you know, for this big mission. You know, we went, we know where they went at the beginning. They went to Florida for their initial, you know, basic training in small airplanes. And then later on, you know, in 2001, they all moved to the, they all moved to the desert and started flying these, you know, uh, learning how to fly these Boeing uh, airplanes that they were that was that was used in the attacks. Uh, let me remind listeners: Philip Marshall, a veteran airline captain, is with us and uh, uh, has led a comprehensive ten-year study into the tactical plan used by the 9/11 hijackers and is the leading aviation expert on the September 11th attack. Uh, let me just set the table here uh, for those just joining us, Philip. So, uh, you believe that uh, and and the congressional uh, joint inquiry. Uh, tends to suggest that this was an inside job. It was carried out in part by the the uh, the hijackers, but there was obviously participation within the U.S. administration. Yes, someone you know the 
the entire mission was was carried out by the Saudi Arabian intelligence uh, agency. And, you know, the 9-11 joint inquiry said that, you know, they were Saudi spies that had seemingly unlimited funds from Saudi Arabia. They knew where they were getting the money from. They, They tracked down the bank accounts, and they were able to find, you know, that they had shared bank accounts with some of the top people in the Saudi monarchy, including... Uh, this Prince Bandar bin Sultan was, um, you know, he. I, I believe that he was the initial mastermind, and then they later on farmed out, you know, the actual attack and the execution to the former Saudi intelligence chief, uh, a guy named uh, Prince uh, Turkey Al Fazl, who they found, you know, he left Las Vegas, you know, in the same desert you know, just a few days after the attacks with a 100 men, you know. So they had a pretty big logistical and tactical team on the ground operating in the U.S., and I believe that, you know, they could not have been operating here without some sort of protection from our intelligence community. Uh, you, you you point out that uh, Bandar al-Sultan Sultan is, is um, or at least you, you, you were describing this to me when we were in Santa Monica together, that... Uh, that he is so close uh, to the Bush family that he's known as Bandar Bush. Yes, and, you know, before 9-11, I was actually studying the Iran-Contra uh, affair that I was involved in back in the 80s, and his name came up as a financier in the illegal arming of the Nicaraguan Contras. You know, so the Bush, uh, the Bush-Cheney, uh, Saudi connection goes way back. It goes back at least 30 years to when, you know, these guys have worked together on several covert missions together. Now, Bandar was, at the time, the ambassador to Washington, was he not? That is correct. And, <laughs> you know, we found, I mean, he met Donald Rumsfeld in, I have a picture of him on our Facebook page. The, our Facebook page is called The Big Bamboozle. And uh, it's a good place to go. That's where we put we post a lot of our uh, videos and a lot of the media coverage that we believe is is nonsense. And then we will rebut the you know the postings that the media makes. But um, you know, Bandar is you know he he is really <laughs> he goes back a long he, he goes along back a long way with the, with the Bush uh, family. When we come back, uh, we'll also talk about, uh, I believe, checks that were signed by Bandar's wife and where they ended up. We'll connect the dots here. The Big Bamboozle author, Phil Marshall, veteran airline captain, former government special activities contract pilot, and the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Don't you dare go way back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Is it rude to suggest that when the Bush family wakes up in the morning, they might be thinking about what's best for the Saudis instead of what's best for you or me? Welcome back. Uh, That clip you heard uh, was from Michael Moore's documentary, Fahrenheit 9-11. Not a huge Michael Moore fan, but I think at least he came close to getting at the truth. Wouldn't you agree, Phil? Yeah, he was on the right track for sure. Um, you know, the the missing link here to all the 
you know, these, these theories uh, with the Saudis is, is what I was investigating, and, and that is basically the nuts and bolts of 9-11, you know, how they actually executed the attack, how they actually trained the hijackers, how they actually flew the mission, you know, um, how, how they prepared for it, how they, um, you know, how they started, you know, years in advance. This thing, you know, there's there's another group called the Project for a New American Century. I bet you've heard of that. Oh, yes. And um, they, you know, they basically wrote the blueprint for the post-9-11 world, which was to invade the Middle East and to pretty much clamp down on, you know, American society. Um, you know, you can look at this as the the central intelligence has has basically taken over the United States government. They've changed their name to the United States Intelligence Community. They're based at the George Bush Center of Intelligence in Langley, Virginia. And they now control 16 of our most powerful agencies in Washington. And, um, you know, those include the Department of Homeland Security, you know, DHS, the TSA, Transportation Security Agency, the CIA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, and here's the big one, the United States Treasury, where over $15 trillion have disappeared from our Treasury since the 9-11 attack. So this is a coup d'etat. It's the second coup d'etat. First, they took the executive branch over in 63 in Daly Plaza, and then I guess the remaining important uh, um, uh, departments uh, with 9-11. Phil... uh, uh, Phil is um, Phil Marshall is with us, the author of The Big Bamboozle. I, I mentioned before the break, uh, Prince Bandar, member of the Saudi royal family, was the ambassador to Washington, D.C. during 9-11. His wife, did she not write checks to the, the terrorists? Yeah, well, they, they had a joint bank account at the Riggs Bank in Washington that was in business, I think, since 18... 18- 1830 or you know way back before the you know before the civil war even you know and uh, this was a big washington powerful bank and you know she had an account there and so did bandar himself and then the hijackers the people who were uh supporting the hijackers were harboring the hijackers on the west coast also had a bank account at that same bank, and there was transfers that the Congressional Joint Inquiry found that went from her bank account directly to the people who were aiding the hijackers. So, I mean, this is not conspiracy theory, folks. This is the, these are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry, which was largely ignored, muzzled, uh, by uh, Dick Cheney. Even, uh, now, did Cheney not sick the FBI to investigate the uh, the members of the inquiry yeah according to graham's book uh you know he wrote a book called intelligence matters and um you know he described how you know they were threatening you know the the investigators the congressional staff and everything with lie detector tests with all kinds of you know intrusive uh you know interrogations and just threaten them and they muzzled them into silence and that's exactly what uh, senator graham said they were muzzled into silence by dick cheney now the the saudi uh, agent that that met uh at least two of the hijackers i believe in in san diego uh, tell me about this individual 
Yeah, well, this guy was named Omar Al-Bayoumi, and he was a... Um, he was a Saudi national living in the United States, living living in San Diego. And on uh, just a couple of days after the hijackers had landed in, in Los Angeles, he drove up to the Saudi embassy and met behind closed doors at the Saudi embassy and left that meeting and, and went directly to a, a small restaurant in Los Angeles where the hijackers were waiting. And he... Now, the thing that I found really interesting about him was he was the guy that I was looking for because when I put the, uh, I began my research by putting together the attack. I recreated the attack. I recreated the times that they departed, how they flew the mission, what kind of air, you know, aviation uh, skills were needed to fly this mission. And I determined that they had definitely had contact with Boeing experts. And this guy, Omar Bayoumi, was working for a company called Dalla Avco out of, on the West Coast. But they were based in Saudi Arabia, and they had Boeing aircraft that they had underneath their, uh, under their certificate. So this was my aviation expert that I was looking for. And he, was, he wasn't an aviation expert, but he led them to the company that had training materials, had simulators, had all the you know, all the things that you would need to, you know, train the hijackers. And I'm sure you had access to uh, Arabic-speaking flight instructors for the Boeing aircraft. Omar Al-Bayoumi. This is, he's, he was an, is an employee of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority. Right. And he met these hijackers. Now, this, again, is co- according to the Congressional Joint Inquiry. Yes. He was someone that the FBI were very interested in speaking to. What happened when the inquiry tried to speak to this individual? Well, they actually served him a subpoena, or, or they, they wrote up a subpoena, and um, the FBI headquarters and the, the Bush White House refused to serve him the subpoena. Why? They didn't give a reason. They just said... <laughs> you cannot interview this individual. Yeah. This is someone who had contact with at least two, perhaps three hijackers prior to the 9-11 attacks, had repeated meetings with them, and the inquiry was told by the FBI, by Dick Cheney, don't you dare speak to this individual. That's correct. That's correct. And, and the, the most interesting one is, is the, uh, the, the, the eventual pilot hijacker for American 77, a guy named Hanny Hanjour, this is the one that hit the Pentagon. This is the one that yeah. flew into the Pentagon. That's the one that hit the Pentagon, exactly. And he flew into town, um, into San Diego, um, you know, the day after Bush was declared president by the Supreme Court. And soon after, within the next week, all three of them left the San Diego area, and that's when they went out into the deserts in Arizona and began to train for the mission. Now, we need to spend some time uh, discussing how this was pulled off, because as you point out in The Big Bamboozle, everything we knew about Al-Qaeda, if there is an Al-Qaeda, up until this point, up till this point, was all about car bombs and, and, uh, you know, shoe bombs and, and, and pretty awkward, clumsy attempts to bring down airliners. Now, all of a sudden, we're led to believe that they're capable of something far more complex, I mean, exponentially more complex, bringing down uh, or bringing the the most sophisticated uh, military 
uh, and defense mechanism ever known to man to its knees. It just doesn't. It doesn't add up. Oh, it, it's it's absolutely impossible to suggest that these guys, the ones that, and and, and the thing is, is that there's no evidence in, when you when you read over the real evidence in this case, the facts are all point to the Saudi operation, and to suggest that some guy that's living in a cave without electricity was the guy that defeated all U.S. national security is is, is it's preposterous. However, and, I, and I, I asked you this in Santa Monica, because up until I, I read your book, Phil, I, part of me still believed that, it, it, that uh, those buildings may have been brought down in part by controlled demolition or some other, some other device, uh, that, it, that it wasn't possible, for example, for Honey Honjor to maneuver um, Flight 77 into the Pentagon and, and, and hit it that way. But, but you say... It is. I mean, you're you're speaking as a veteran commercial airline pilot. The things that they did on 9/11, those 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 hijackers. It is possible with the right training. Oh, absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I've flown the patterns. You know, in the simulator that they flew. Now, the most difficult one was the one that hit the Pentagon. You know, he he began. He he didn't take over the airplane. And I I point this out in the book. You know how. The errors that they made. I believe that they meant to take that airplane over a lot earlier, but they didn't. For some reason, they didn't take the airplane over until it was almost 300 miles to the west of Washington. I think the initial plan was to take it around 70, 80 miles, something like that. So there, there was some kind of a, a malfunction going on with the, with the hijacking that they didn't take the airplane over when they should have. So it really exposed a lot of errors, and it really exposed who was behind it because, you know, all that time that it took them to fly. I mean, they were flying for 40 minutes, you know, at 500 miles an hour straight, you know, while the country was under attack. You know, something that would look like a missile on a radar, you know, a 500-mile-an-hour object coming straight at at the nation's capital, um, it really exposed them. But to, to see the way he flew that airplane, you know, he turned it around, you know, he descended, he took the autopilot off for a while, he put it back on, he came down to 9,000 feet over Dulles Airport, you know, and this is 30 minutes into after they took over the airplane. And supposedly, you know, NORAD didn't see this, this missile coming right at, at Washington. And he disconnected the autopilot. He came down to about 7,000 feet. He did a very advanced uh, right descending turn. You know, this is all on the, on the black box recordings, the FAA radar, NTSB reports that I was able to, to get. And, um, you know, he, 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 he rolled out about 2,500 feet, uh, about four miles to the west of the Pentagon, pushed up the throttles all the way to, to the firewall, basically, and 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 nose the airplane down and hit the Pentagon at an incredible speed, 480 knots indicated, which for that airplane at that altitude, the red line is at about 350 knots. So, I mean, this guy really did some phenomenal flying. But like I said, this guy had time in airplanes before. He had a commercial uh, pilot's license for smaller single-engine airplanes, but definitely he could have been trained up easily to 
to that level of flying. But it would take many, many practice sessions to get that type of proficiency. And uh, and uh, of, of American Airlines uh, 11 and United Airlines 175 that hit the North and South Towers, uh, likewise, those maneuvers, could, you could do that if you had enough training? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are normal procedures. I mean, they're, they're procedures that we practice in the simulator all the time. Basically, uh, 175, the one that we've all seen that hit the South Tower. So, you know, he was over New Jersey at 31,000 feet and, you know, basically did a, what we call a, a high dive, which is, you know, in case you, you know, blow out your uh, pressurization, we practice this all the time where you, you know, throttles off, spoilers out, you just let the airplane dump down. How know. would they know exactly where to hit it to cause the buildings to collapse? Well, I think he was trained to hit, you know, at a certain point where you were out of the range of the water cannons. And then, you know, if you, you, know, if you look, you know, people say, well, you know, a missile or, or whatever. But, look, a, a Tomahawk missile weighs 2,500 pounds. It's not a very big missile. A, a Boeing 767 weighs 300,000 pounds, okay? So that would be, it would be the equivalent of hitting that building with about 100 Tomahawk missiles when you consider that that airplane, 300,000 pounds with um, 30,000 gallons of jet fuel in it, you know, that was, that was the biggest conventional missile even though it was an airliner, it, it, it's, a, it's a missile. But we were told that the hijackers uh, basically learned to do this by flying in some single-engine planes and then watching some movies. <laughs> why, would they, why would they say that? Why wouldn't they give us a more believable story and say, no, they had training, they, were, they, had, uh, you know, they used simulators, maybe they even flew a, fl- a few Boeings? Yeah, well, you know, they... <laughs> You know, they, they knew they knew that they went into simulators down in Miami and, and one in Arizona, um, and then I believe that they were on a. They actually got into real airplanes because at, at a certain uh, intelligence community uh, airport just north of Tucson, Arizona, uh, I did the research on it, and that that airport had Boeing 757s and 767s parked. At that airport. Okay, at let me just. Very time. Phil, let me take a time out. We'll come back and we'll discuss that when we come back. Phil Marshall, the big bamboozle. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Well, generally, is that a traffic area in New York for, for aircraft? It's not a normal uh, flight pattern. I'm a frequent fl- uh, traveler between Atlanta and New York for business, and it's not a normal flight pattern to come directly over Manhattan. Usually they come up either over the, the Hudson River heading north and, and pass alongside the island of Manhattan, or if they're taking off from LaGuardia, they usually take off uh, over Shea Stadium and, 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 and take off gain altitude around the island of Manhattan. It's rare that you have a jet crossing directly over um, the island of Manhattan. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Again, this is not conspiracy theory. These are the findings of the Congressional Joint Inquiry led by a former Florida senator, a Republican moderate by the name of Bob Graham. And it 
Well, what, what was um, not redacted certainly clearly shows a connection between the, uh, the Saudi royal family and the 9-11 attackers, or the 9-11 terrorists, rather. Uh, but none of that could have happened without complicity from somewhere inside the United States government. Now, is it, is, does, the, does the congressional inquiry go so far, uh, Phil, as to indict individuals in the U.S. government uh, for this cover-up, or do they simply hint that there was a cover-up? What, what do they say? Um, I know the parts that have been declassified do not go into that. Uh, however, uh, Senator Graham has, you know, vehemently, uh, you know, exposed that the, there was 28 pages that are still classified that go into greater detail. And um, th- those 28 pages, now th- this is a report, this is a congressional report paid for by the taxpayers to get to the bottom of the 9-11 incident. And... Um, the attack. And, um, you know, for, for Dick Cheney to step in there and say, no, I'm sorry, you guys, this is classified. And w- when everyone on that committee was saying that there was nothing, nothing that affected national security, that it was just a total embarrassment, they called it, to the, um, to the, to the Bush administration. Now, let's get back to this, um, this covert airfield that you've concluded was where the terrorists, where the hijackers were trained in simulators. Now, first of all, is it possible, speaking as a veteran airline uh, captain, is it possible for an individual to fly in Boeing simulators undetected? Uh, it'd be very, very difficult. I mean, there, there's contracts, contractors that, that, that uh, rent out Boeing simulators to you know, potential pilots. Now, I'm not talking about simulators here. I'm talking about actual airplanes that were on the ground at this, uh, this air base um, that's known for covert activity. It, it goes all the way back to the Air America days when they were training in the C-123s. And, um, you know, this airport has a long history of black operations and uh, covert operations being trained out of that airport. So it's a lot of top-secret stuff going on out there. I went out there myself to, to visit that airport one night, and I saw all kinds of Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, I saw C-131s, C-130s, you know, out there practicing, training all throughout the night. So, so you've deduced that this, this airfield is where the hijackers uh, learned to fly Boeings. That's my that's my educated guess. The um, you know at the at the time we had Saudi, we knew we had the Saudi hijackers out there. We had the Saudi uh, intelligence people out there, and we know that there were 757s and 767s, the, the same planes that were used in the attack. They were parked at this field. Would they have actually been able to? To, to do a dry run and actually fly, take, take their turn uh, in the captain's chair of a 757 or a 767 while in flight. Absolutely. Absolutely. They could have done that many, many, many times over. And the, the Congressional Joint Inquiry and, and the 9-11 Commission both 
found that all of the pilot hijackers had made trips, you know, in, into the desert um, for, for, from about May until August of uh, 2001, where they would, they would land at Las Vegas Airport in the, in the desert, and they would disappear for three or four days at a time, and then they would reappear and go back to the East Coast. And that every last one of them was documented to do that. And in the Big Bamboozle, I show you know all of these you know all, all the testimony of the of the FBI director who was who actually mentioned those flights. And again, it's not possible, for example, that these hijackers told the people that were training them. We're members of the, uh, you know, we're, we're bodyguards for the Saudi royal family. They want us to train as pilots. Why couldn't they have, have used that excuse? Oh, well, they used that excuse when they were in basic training down in Florida, when people were asking them what they were doing, you know, in Florida, learning how to fly airplanes. And they, they said that they were Saudi royal family bodyguards learning how to fly airplanes. But when they got out into the desert, um, they, FBI agents were following them around you know, and, and reporting, hey, you know, these guys are out here, you know, in the desert. They're learning how to fly airplanes. We think they're doing some kind of a terrorist activity. They sent that up. You know, it, that's all documented in the report. This, uh, this FBI uh, field agent out of Phoenix uh, reported them. That, I mean, they could have stopped this. They could have stopped the attack probably 10 times from the time just on the FBI reporting, you know, through their own channels. All right, we'll take a time out. Phil Marshall, The Big Bamboozle, stays with us. Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Let me crib here quickly from The Big Bamboozle. From the moment the hijackers arrived on U.S. soil, it is well documented that Saudi intelligence agents and employees of the Saudi Civil Aviation Authority provided housing, obtained driver's licenses, and harbored them. After lying low as a sleeper cell throughout the year 2000, they would be led to intensive flight training in the Arizona desert in December of 2000, which leads to the first plausible explanation of the incredible flying performance demonstrated on 9-11. After submitting an 800-page report to the American public, Moderate U.S. Senator Bob Graham of Florida, the co-chairman of the inquiry, said, quote, There was a direct line between the terrorists and the government of Saudi Arabia. The Saudi government had provided logistical and financial support to at least two of the 9-11 hijackers while they lived in Southern California. Graham chronicled that FBI headquarters had responded aggressively to Cheney's request that the FBI investigate the inquiry staff during the investigation, interviewing dozens of members of Congress and their aides. The Bureau suggested it wanted to use polygraphs on some of the lawmakers with the threat of prosecution and jail, of being traitors in a time of war. To, to Graham, the entire experience seemed surreal. So, the, nine, uh, the, uh, the inquiry connects the dots to uh, Saudi intelligence, and then goes on to document how, or at least uh, Bob Graham did in his book, how Dick Cheney and the FBI wanted to cover this up. To me, that's pretty much case closed. You don't have to believe in controlled demolition to know that certain elements within the U.S. government working with Saudi intelligence pulled 9-11 off. Uh, Philip Marshall, uh, back to this airfield. Is there a connection between this airfield and Blackwater? 
Oh, yes. Um, you know, th there was an author named Jeremy Scahill who wrote the book Blackwater, and he really chronicled the connections between the uh, the number three man, supposedly, at, at, at CIA, um, a guy named Buzzy Krongard. Um, he was he was the man who was doling out contracts, you know, no bid contracts to to Blackwater on behalf of of us, the taxpayers, basically. And uh, he was also the head of of the same investment firm, you know. Uh, he was formerly the head of the 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 same investment firm who placed put option trades, stock trades on two airlines. Only two airlines were were traded. In, in in big portions in the week prior to 9/11, and it was by his firm, and the the only two airlines that they used were American and United Airlines. They 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 um, they they traded stock. They put put options. You know you know betting that that the the stock price for United and American would go down. They did not place any other stock options on any other airlines. And that was done through the Chicago Stock Exchange. But how do we know it was Buzzy Krongard? Uh We don't know that it was from him, but we know that it was from the firm that he once founded. So there is a connection there. Alex Brown Bank, was that it? Uh, exactly, Alex mm -hmm. Brown. All right, let's grab some calls. Uh, our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, checks in. Hello, Nelson. Good, and uh, talking about 9-11, and I agree, you know, the planes are a distraction. I mean, look at Building 7, right? I mean, what are they going to say there? An invisible plane hit the building? But <laughs> you see the whole situation. But I don't think there was just any one, but this is too big for any, if anybody knows anything about the intelligence agencies, this is too big an operation for just one. I'm sure the Saudis were involved. Uh, so far, the banned book on the subject. It's also as important as English literature, media scientists. Rich, we should remember um, Andreas von Bülow's book was banned, and he talked about the CIA and 9-11. So there were lots of agencies involved. What brought down Building 7? I'd be interested in what he found. Well, you know, the uh, the Building 7 thing is, is suspicious to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not a building expert. My, my area of expertise is the airplanes and how they got you know, to to where they were on 9/11. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on how buildings come down. Um, you know, I think I think we need to look at that that project for a new American Century uh, document real close again. The rebuilding America's defenses. A lot of those guys. Paul Wolfowitz was in there. You know, Donald Rumsfeld. You know, these were all. Cheney people, and they're all... Now, as for, as for Building 7, I mean, when I look at that, that could have been controlled demolition. Would you agree? Uh, you know, I don't, like, like I said, that's way out of my area of expertise. My, my area is the airplanes and how right. they got to where they got. All right. Let's uh, say hello to Michael in the beaches. Michael, welcome. Yes, uh, good evening, uh, uh, Richard and uh, Phil Marshall. Uh, <clears throat> I guess... I seem to remember years ago uh, hearing some hijacker uh, being quoted as saying that, uh, you know, he didn't want to know how to, you know, start the plane or take off, and he didn't want to know how to land the plane. He just simply wanted to know how to fly the plane. And if that is true, that he allegedly said this, 
you know, I guess where would he have gotten the trainer, training? And was he one of the hijackers that, uh, you know, died as well? Yeah, now that was in, that was in the uh, the basic training phases when these guys were learning how to uh, fly smaller airplanes, and they, they were getting introduction courses in a Boeing simulator down in uh, Opelika, Florida. I believe that's where the, this incident happened. So they, they the guy went in there. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to prepare themselves for the for the training that was coming up on the airplanes. I believe. And um, so that when he went into that simulator, he said, well, I don't really need to know how to take off. I just need to know how to fly around. Michael, thank you for the call. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, uh, a Prince Turkey El Faisal, another member of the royal family. Uh, again, what, his connection to the, uh, the 9-11 uh, hijackers was what? Well, he was, he was in the desert. And uh, they they departed Las Vegas. There wasn't anything written up on him until they they started looking into these flights that left uh, Las Vegas on September nineteenth, twentieth, and I think twenty second, um, right after the attack. And there were three chartered airliners that left Las Vegas back going back to, to the kingdom, and he was on one of them. And there was a hundred men with him. So he had been in the desert at the same time that the hijackers had been in the desert and, and the people who were harboring them. Now, it's interesting because some of the, the survivors or the families of uh, those killed in the 9-11 attacks, they launched a, a class action suit against Prince Turkey al-Faisal, did they not? That's correct. And, 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 and what happened with that suit? That suit was thrown out because the, the federal judge ruled that you know, we we can't sue a, a company, a, a country who is operating on U.S. soil, <laughs> even though that that is illegal for a, for a foreign intelligence agency to be operating on U.S. soil. And and who was the lawyer for Turkey Al Faisal? Um, well, it came out of. Uh, James Baker's law firm down there, you know, James Baker and, and, and the Bush family are real tight. He was um, chief of staff for, for, for George 41. Exactly. And James Baker and George 41, during the Reagan years, you have concluded, were essentially responsible for the, uh, the Iran-Contra. Exactly, yes. So do you think, then, that James Baker and George 41 were also involved, along with Dick Cheney, uh, with the Saudi, uh, the Saudi uh, Civil Aviation Authority and, and uh, uh, members of the, the Saudi royal family in orchestrating 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I believe that they, this is a long-term plan to take over our government. And I, I wrote about that in my first book uh, that was titled Lakefront Airport. It's not available for sale right now, but it will be soon. Um, but yes, I, I started to make the connect the dots between James Baker, the Bush family, the Saudi family, and um, you know all this before 9/11 even even started. So, would you then conclude that we are what we what we witnessed on 9/11 was a was a coup d'état? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what what has happened to our government since then. Um, you know, and, and the big thing is that, 
you know, our justice system has been railroaded. Um, you know, they, they, they blame that at, at the same time they were training these Saudis, the back channels and CIA were floating this rumor about some, some dark ghost that nobody had ever seen, you know, some, some spooky guy named, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, you know, boo, and, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, so, so they were spreading the, through the back channels that this guy was getting ready to attack. So on, when, when the attack came down, Everyone in CIA and everyone in in the intelligence community said, "Oh yeah, we know who's who's going to do who who did this." You know, it's it's this guy Osama bin Laden. And then, but when you look into it, there is no no not one shred of evidence of any involvement in the planning or the execution of the attack. Now, uh, Prince Bandar, it it was reported on July twenty sixth. Uh, again, the former Saudi ambassador to Washington, that he was assassinated. Uh, what do we know about Prince Bandar's whereabouts? Is he, in fact, dead, or do we know? Well, it's been known for... It, 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 there's been rumored for quite some time that he's he's got major drug and alcohol problems um, and that he'd been in some kind of an asylum or some kind of rehab facility for years. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's well documented that he has... A, has drug and alcohol issues. Um, and for him, he, you know, he, he's been coming and going in the media, and I think it's probably just another propaganda ploy. It might be his, his plan to escape, just say that, oh, I'm dead, you know, and, and uh, disguise himself and go live on, on an island somewhere for the rest of his life. I don't know. Uh, Phil, when it comes to 9-11, uh, skeptics uh, who suggest there's no way it would have been uh, an inside job, it's even, you know, odious and, and uh, disgusting to suggest such a thing, and they say, so where are the whistleblowers? Well, we've got Senator Bob Graham sort of uh, blowing the whistle, but where are these FBI field agents who tried to tell their higher-ups that this was going on and they were repeatedly ignored? Why aren't they speaking out? Why aren't they more vocal? Yeah, that, you know, that's a good question. You know, it would be in a federal trial, you know, which I have always pushed for, you know, bring this Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to trial. Bring these guys up on on a witness stand and let them do it. But, you know, this is a this is what I call a beer bottle cap conspiracy. You know, you've got all these people down in the middle of the of the bottle that are doing the grunt work, the real Americans, the real people who are who are honest. But it, right at the top, they put, you know, they put the director of the FBI in there, and he holds down all that information. So it would be very interesting to get these guys on the stand and, and, and hear what they have to really say. Uh, Philip, uh, job well done with The Big Bamboozle. How can folks get a copy of this book? It's very important that they do. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. We have it on Kindle. It's also all throughout Europe and um, yeah, the UK. We have it on uh, Amazon UK and Amazon Europe, um, so it's available. It's easy to pick up on Amazon. All right, terrific job, and thanks for joining me, Phil. Thank you, uh, Richard, and thank you for uh, keeping this subject alive. It's the least I can do. All right, my man. Thank right. you. Bye bye. The late Phil Marshall, uh, dead. We are told officially uh, murder suicide after killing his own teenage children. Too tragic and horrific to even consider. I met the man. I don't know him. I didn't know him that well, but I find it difficult to believe that this gentle, uh, rational, 
intelligent man would do such a thing. Perhaps, I mean, he indicted some pretty powerful people in bamboozle, 9-11 and the war on terror. Did he pay for his, for this indiscretion, I suppose, or did he, did he pay with his life? Listen, um, it's a good way to discredit someone, right? You kill people close to him and then you kill him and you blame him. Anyway, we'll uh, perhaps never know. Phil Marshall, the big bamboozle, the late Phil Marshall. Uh, Back next week with part two of my conversation with James D. Eugenio on JFK Cuba and the Garrison case. And in the second hour, disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government and you. Thanks to Tim Spreen. Back next week. hope Hope you'll be with me. Don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed, nothing revealed that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, which you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.